Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So uh, I'd like to talk today about dividing uh, the city of Jerusalem and, and more general dividing holy places around the world. Uh, and I guess I should start uh, in Arizona, uh, specifically uh, near Tuba City, Arizona, uh, in, the, in the Navajo Reservation, where there is, unbeknownst to most of you, I hope, unless you're real geeks, uh, a territorial dispute between uh, Navajo, Navajo, Paiute, and Hopi uh, tribes uh, over, over a part of the very, very large uh, Navajo Reservation. Uh, specifically a part of that reservation uh, in which the Echo Cliffs are located because the Echo Cliffs are sacred ground. So you have a regular plain old territorial dispute with this sacred space embedded in the middle. And it's a particularly tough dispute for the Paiute and the Hopi because in these Echo Cliffs um, nest the golden eagles that both of these tribes worship. Uh, The Hopi worship them as messengers to the god. The Paiute worship them as actual gods. Uh, which has led to some friction because for the Paiute, since these, uh, these baby birds, their baby eagles, are divine, uh, they go out of their way to protect them. They camp around them. They make sure nobody accesses the echo cliffs. Uh, they protect the environment. They protect the plants and, and other animals that these uh, eagles require for, for, for thriving. The Hopi, on the other hand, who view them as messengers to the god, gods, are concerned with uh, allowing the eaglets to deliver the messages to the god, and so they take them from the echo cliffs, uh, chain them uh, to the, the, the buildings in which they reside so that they can observe uh, the daily rituals of the tribe, and in midsummer, during the Niman ceremony, strangle them to death. As you can imagine, the Paiute are not crazy about this. So why is, this story, why is this story in any way relevant to Jerusalem? First, uh, I think it injects a certain note of, at, uh, of optimism into discussions of Middle East politics. The Middle East is by no means unique. You don't have to travel all the way to the Middle East. Uh, and you certainly don't have to travel all the way to the Middle East to find a dispute over sacred space sitting in the center of a secular dispute uh, over territory and impeding progress. So those are the first two reasons why I mention it. The third reason I'm mentioning it is, is uh, to give you a general hint about the pessimistic tone of this talk. Um, despite the title uh, that Richard and I chose carefully for the talk to lure you into the doors, um, I, I have no vision of sharing sacred space in Jerusalem. On the very contrary, I will explain why it is impossible. Um, sacred, co- conflicts over sacred places are very common all around the world. Uh, There are several, in fact, not far from here. There's one very close to where I live um, in in Northern California where the Shasta Indians are are in conflict with (laughs) tourists who wish to ski down Mount Shasta, a prohibited mountain based on the Shasta Indians. Uh, There are conflicts in the Middle East. There are many, many more conflicts in South Asia. Uh, There are conflicts in Australia between Aborigines and non-Aborigines, primarily tourists. Uh, there are disputes in every corner of the world, and I would go so far as to say that there is not one significant sacred space on the planet that is not the cause of conflict and very often violent conflict. To phrase it differently, if you are in any way familiar with the sacred space over which there is no conflict and which there's some sharing by religious groups, it's probably not that important. You know, certainly there are, there are churches even around here, and so I, I was told that 
people for this event tonight were able to use the parking lot of the church across the street. You know, that's because these aren't particularly important sacred spaces. Once they become important, conflicts develop. Why? Before I say why, let me sort of characterize the kinds of conflicts that you run into. I see the undergraduates are taking careful notes. I will try to speak slowly. <laughs> Stop me if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm going too fast. The good thing is uh, undergraduates um, uh, sort of mumble as they type, so you can tell uh, how fast they're, whether they're falling or not. Um, so the most obvious case is conflicts between, uh, across denominations, Muslims and Jews fighting over Jerusalem. Uh, Hindus and Muslims over sacred space in India. Um, now, this newest thing, Muslims and Christians over sacred space in Europe. Uh, this is sort of the newest trend. Um, this happens as a, usually, the, the usual setting is, a, there's an indigenous religious group. A conqueror comes in with their own religion, uh, subdues the local population, and tries to impose their own religious beliefs, which in part requires taking over the, the existing sacred space and imposing its religion on top of the sacred space. You all know this practice in the realm of sacred time. This is, this is how Christmas comes about. Uh, you take uh, a local sacred time, in this case the winter solstice, uh, you, you know that you cannot completely eradicate it, and so you sort of tie your own story around it. And so suddenly Jesus, who we don't know when he was born. The Gospels aren't clear about this. The only thing the Gospels are clear about is that he was not born in the winter. Um, suddenly his birthday is placed on the winter solstice, and local traditions are sort of incorporated, so you can bring the tree in the way you used to, and you can decorate it, but not become sort of a birthday tree. The same thing happens with sacred space. So as Christians conquer Jerusalem, and then Muslims conquer Jerusalem from Christians, um, they take existing sacred sites, they try to destroy them, which never succeeds because it's not the building that is sacred, it's the ground that's sacred. And so they tend to either build their structures on top or they rededicate the structures into structures of their own, but the indigenous community continues to worship the underlying site. And so you get these strata, these religious layers with different religious groups worshiping different parts of this layer cake. Ayodhya is a, is a classic example, and Professor Hecht here wrote, uh, wrote um, probably the only comparative piece, uh, aside from my book, that actually sort of contrasts these sacred places with one another. How is, how is Jerusalem like Ayodhya in India? In Jerusalem, it's a Muslim site on top of a Jewish site. Um, in India, it's a Muslim site on top of a Hindu site. Uh, now the Muslim site is gone. The Hindus have destroyed it. Um, so that's conflict between different religious groups over the same sacred space. But you also get conflicts within a religious group over a sacred space. A few paces away from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem uh, sits the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the purported site of the crucifixion and resurrection, where different Christian groups are fighting to control the space. And they have demarcated different zones inside the church so that the Copts control the stairs and the Orthodox control the columns and the Latins, the, the Catholic, what we'd call Catholics, control this other column, but only three quarters of it because the Armenians control the fourth quarter. This sounds funny, but they come to blows over these things. Nuns chasing priests with candlesticks and archbishops stabbing archdeacons. It's really quite dramatic. And, and if you go online, as I'm sure the undergraduates will this very second as soon as I say it, uh, you will see you know, brawls in the hallways of this very, very small church 
Why? Because these churches all descend from a mother church. They all claim to be Christianity. They all claim to be the true religion. And controlling this space and controlling who gets to access it and controlling who gets to pray there and the kinds of rituals that you conduct there allows you uh, to stake claim uh, to being the true religion. And this is, after all, a big deal. I mean, this is the, the site of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, so that's option two for conflict. Option three for conflict is conflict between a religious group and a secular group where, where, where sacred space happens to be a sort of desirable real estate. So Mount Shasta is a cool place to ski. So I'd like to ski there, but the Shasta Indians disagree. Um, the, the Black Mountains in Wyoming are an example, or, or uh, Devil's Peak in Wyoming, right? A great place to climb, um, but the Plains Indians consider it to be sacred space and do not wish you to dig in it or climb. Custer's Last Stand, by the way, revolves in part around a conflict between gold prospectors who, who wish to dig in mountains sacred to Native Americans and Native Americans who wouldn't, uh, would have none of it. So here's a case where only one party to the conflict is driven by religion. Uh, the other party is in it for the money or the tourism. Option four for conflict over sacred space around the world is when military conflict that's taking place for some reason or other happens to stray into sacred space. So you will have heard of U.S. troops in Iraq and Afghanistan pursuing insurgents, and these insurgents hide in mosques um, for, for reasons that I can, I can go into in the Q&A. It, it offers them certain advantages. And, of course, reason five, uh, particularly visible in Iraq, one group targeting the sacred space of the other uh, in an effort to provoke it uh, or, or just kill as many of its adherents as possible. So plenty of reasons to fight over sacred space. Almost as many reasons as there are to fight over secular space. The big difference is that these conflicts over sacred space are very difficult to resolve. And, and to explain why, I'd like to introduce... Uh, uh, to introduce a concept from game theory called indivisibility, uh, which sheds light on why it is that regular territories that we fight over uh, all the time are uh, very easy to divide, whereas sacred space, I'd like to argue, and that's sort of the theme of the book, um, is indivisible. So indivisibility is not something that sort of comes, uh, comes easy to people to think of, uh, which is why at this point I would have shown you uh, a lovely picture of my baby daughter as, as an example of an indivisible good. Now, how is it that babies are indivisible? Or so at least King Solomon thought. And it worked. That ploy worked. It's clear to any mother who is sane that her baby is indivisible, by which she does not mean that the baby cannot physically be divided. Right? In the pictures, right? there's always King Solomon's assistant there with a really big sword. Right? The baby can be physically divided. That's not what we mean with indivisible. We mean cannot be divided to the satisfaction of the parties involved. Secular territory is infinitely divisible. Give me a ruler and a pencil, and I can divide this room in infinite ways. Right? This way, or that way, or this way, or that way. 90% in 10, or 50-50, or 60-40. Babies are indivisible for three reasons, and you need all three reasons for something to be indivisible. So undergraduates, three reasons. One, the thing that you're arguing about, the thing that you're bargaining over, has to, have, has to be very clearly defined. If something is ambiguously defined, it's very easy to divide. 
because we can uh, disagree as to what it is we're actually fighting over. Uh, and then you can have your land, and I can have my land, and we're both happy. So the Golan Heights take another uh, dispute from the same part of the world. The Golan Heights, should the two parties be interested in resolving the dispute, uh, will, be, will be easily divisible. Uh, the Golan Heights have no natural boundaries. Uh, the term is sort of a modern invention. Uh, the Syrians can have their Golan Heights, and if it's divided nicely, the Israelis can still claim to have their Golan Heights, and no party feels uh, worse off. My baby daughter is very clear, Annie is her name, by the way, is very clearly defined. It's very clear to me and her mother where she starts and ends. <laughs> and so if, if Professor Hecht would say to me, Ron, you can have 90%, all I want is her right arm, I would say, no. No, Richard, you cannot have her right arm. That is an integral part of, no questions asked. I don't even have to confirm with my wife. And he'd say, okay, just the hand. That's five, less than 5% of your diet. And I would say, no. The hand has to be included, all fingers, all the way to the end. Do not touch a hair. Right? Uh, you, and you can imagine other things that where, where and you do this sometimes in, in, in classroom exercises, right, where two, two groups have to, have to agree on how to divide an orange, and it only later turns out that one, one party wants the peel and only the other party wants the inside. And it turns out you know, there's a lot of room for accommodation here. I will argue in a minute that sacred space does not allow for that kind of flexibility. So that's number one, boundaries. Number two, coherence, the way the parts hang together. Take away, physically remove part of my daughter and the whole thing falls apart. It's no use to me. Uh, when only half is there. That is not true for a big pile of money, which is, which is very easily divisible. Or even a plot of land, where you could argue, yeah, you know, as long as the plot is big enough, I could build something on half of it. It's worth exactly half of what the whole is worth. Uh, with babies, uh, half is worth nothing. It's gone, right? It's, it's lost. It's, it's lost its value for me. And I, and I will make the case in a moment that the same is true for sacred places. Take away a tiny bit of a sacred space, and it loses its holiness. It loses its ability to provide functions to a believer. Uh, and the third and final issue, uh, which I, th I think is sort of obvious, is fungibility, ability to exchange something for money. If we are fighting over a piece of territory, and let's assume it's very clearly defined, and let's assume it cannot be split apart in any way, well, there's always the option of you offering me money for it. Won't work with my daughter. Richard may offer me a million dollars for her right arm, and I will say no. And he may offer me five million dollars, and I will still say no. And when he offers me fifty million dollars, I will hesitate briefly, but then still say no. And it always be no. I will not accept money in exchange for that body. Body is an interesting word here, by the way, right? Uh, babies are divisible in time. That's what, that's what parents are talking about when they divorce, Right? Uh, they, want they want to divide the time with their children. It's the bodies that are indivisible. Right? You cannot divide the body of a kid. Uh, and, and I will argue that, that sacred space is non-fungible. There is no substitute for the place, for the site of the crucifixion and resurrection. No other place on earth is like it. So now, let me move over here and talk about sacred space and about what I consider to be the three primary characteristics of sacred space. They're sort of predictable. <laughs> Number one, sacred space has clearly defined boundaries. Why? Because it's, the bottom line is because it's dangerous. Sacred space is where the divine manifests itself. 
It is where you come in touch with God or the gods. You may witness miracles. You may witness healing. You may actually witness a vision of the divine. You may receive a message. Or you may send up a message. Um, The divine is more present, more concentrated there than anywhere else. Which is an interesting paradox, but it's a paradox that exists in almost all religions, that God is everywhere, but God is more in some places than he is in others. Um, those are the kind of places where you would hope for a miracle. Those are the kind of places where you would slip a little note in a wall and, and, and hope that the prayer will be answered because the divine is somehow more concentrated. Um, that, that also makes the place dangerous. Moses learns this lesson immediately upon encountering his first sacred space. It's very attractive. You want to go there? It's a burning bush. It's exciting. The text says this, right? He sort of draws near, wants to find out what he is, what it is, and the first thing he hears, the first words he hears from the bush is, stop, there are rules about approaching the sacred. Come no further, take off your shoes, etc., etc., etc. And so the divine also has to be protected. Protected against insult, protected against blasphemy, protected against impure handling, otherwise it becomes desecrated. Right? It stops being a powerful place. So you could insult the gods, that's the worst case scenario, but even if you don't insult the gods, you're going to insult the community that holds this place sacred. So there are rites of passages. Uh, you need to put something on your head, or maybe take something off your head, depending on what sort of sacred space it is. By the way, you can't do both, right? We're getting back to this indivisibility issue. Either you put something on your head, or you take something off your head. You can't do both. Uh, you may take off your shoes, or maybe you have to wash out your mouth if it's a Shinto sacred space. Uh, or you have to say certain things as you cross a threshold. And that threshold has to be very clearly defined. Hence, sacred space has very clear boundaries. We can talk about some exceptions, but they're interesting and telling exceptions. All sacred space that I know, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Confucian, Jewish, uh, has boundaries, and and you know the moment you're entering, and if not, people in the community will tell you, excuse me, no shoes, no shirt, out. In here, you have to wear a shirt, you have to have shoes on, and there's no spitting on the ground, and the tone becomes hushed. And you notice, you get clues from people around you, but there are also clues in the architecture that tell you um, that you've crossed into a threshold. If any of you have ever been in Japan, you would have seen these beautiful entry gates. And as you pass through each one, there are sort of new sets of rules that apply to your behavior. So there's no question as to where the temple mount is. There's no scenario in which there's some sort of ambiguity and Palestinians get to keep their temple mount and Jews get to keep that part over there and we'll call that the temple mount. Temple mount is architecturally, historically, religiously very crisply defined. That's a problem. That removes one of three options for solving a dispute, so ambiguity is out. Option number two was, can we perhaps tear this apart in some way that's fair and even? And that, too, is not an option. Sacred space is perfectly coherent. All the different parts hang together to provide function for the space. I'm assuming that all of you have been in a very large cathedral at some point in your life. Uh, You will have noticed it has a lot of moving parts. It's got the top, it's got the bottom, it's got the front, it's got the transept and the apse and the altar and the choir. And and yet all of these parts fulfill a role. It's no coincidence that the consecration of most sacred spaces involves the community and its leader circumambulating the sacred space, defining by walking the boundaries. In the case of a Catholic church, it would mark crosses, sometimes in olive oil, um, 
on the different walls. The space hangs together, uh, and one way to make it hang together is through rituals that envelop the whole space. Uh, often, uh, in mission churches, you'll see this too. In other Catholic churches, you see stations of the cross on the walls, right? So that as you walk through the church, you can reenact the way to the cross. Uh, but the entire church, in its design, reflects uh, the crucified body of Christ, because the community is the body of Christ. And so taking away the apse or giving the choir to someone else is literally tearing apart the community. And the same is true for a synagogue. And the same is true for a mosque. The parts hang together. A mosque is not a mosque without a minaret. By definition, it ceases to be a mosque once you remove the minaret. A minaret is required for a mosque to be a mosque. It is, again, like removing my daughter's head. She stops to be my daughter in any functional sense. She becomes useless as a daughter. I'm going to stop with that metaphor. Um, (laughs) Because it's getting eerie. Uh, So that leaves us with option three. If we we can't play with the borders and claim that it's actually much bigger than it is, as people have successfully proposed with the case of the city of Jerusalem, there have been multiple efforts to enlarge and enlarge and enlarge the municipal boundaries to give political actors some play in saying, okay, we'll call that part Palestinian Jerusalem, we'll call that part Israeli Jerusalem. That'll work with municipal boundaries. does not work with the sacred site in the middle. And option two of pulling it apart and giving different parcels to different parties, that's not going to work either. So all there is is option three, which is offering some substitute, some replacement. And with sacred space, that's not going to fly. And I, I think that's obvious, but I can, I can go into detail later on. So given all this, how have people tried to resolve the problem of sacred sites in Jerusalem? Mainly by ignoring everything I've just said. So in the run-up to that Camp David um, negotiations in 2000, which I dedicated an entire chapter of the book to, uh, Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat and, and Bill Clinton show up at Camp David having never consulted a religious expert. They say this very openly, and their assistants say this too. They have no idea that the holiness of Jerusalem will become the stumbling block of Camp David, because contrary to many reports in the media, the issue of refugees was addressed, the issue of borders was addressed, the issue of settlements was addressed, water, uh, arming uh, future Palestinian force was addressed. Uh, of these refugees was probably the thorniest. But all of these issues were relatively easily addressed because they were either left some room for ambiguity, left some room for you'll get this and I'll get that, or left some room for I'll swap you this for that, which are the only three ways that I know of to resolve a conflict. The issue of Jerusalem turned out to be the stumbling block at Camp David, in part because the leaders were completely ignorant of the religious function of Jerusalem for their constituencies. So they either underrepresented or they overrepresented the case. Classically being Ehud Barak demanding a synagogue on the Temple Mount, which from a Jewish point of view is just nonsense. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. That's wacky. No Jew on the planet wants a synagogue on the Temple Mount. That's crazy. Uh, Yasser Arafat, on the other hand, denying the Jewish heritage at this site and claiming that it had always been a Muslim site and had no Jewish history, which is, again, from a Muslim point of view, wacky because the reason, in part, that the Temple Mount is significant to Muslims is because Muhammad recognizes the Jewish roots and the Jewish significance of the place. So, ignorance, uh, overrepresenting and underrepresenting. 
uh, refusal to meet with scholars of religion, and certainly a refusal to include religious leaders in the debate. And so there were these secular dudes sitting around and talking about, you know, where should we draw the pencil line on the Temple Mount? Meanwhile, the religious leaders were either, offend, were either offended for not having been included um, or were simply sitting by the side and chuckling as these guys were, were dealing with the sacred space as if, and this is a direct quote from the Israeli negotiator of Jerusalem, uh, as if it were um, real estate. He said, I don't understand what happened. We came to talk about a real estate problem and it turned into this big hoo-ha. What, you, <laughs> sir, you really didn't get it. it. It's not a real estate problem, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a problem having to do with religious symbols and religious identities and religious practices and theology, which you need to be armed with when you come to, uh, to negotiate over these issues. Um, there have been other ways to try to resolve this problem. Uh, some Jews just fantasize. Uh, there's a wonderful group in the old city of Jerusalem uh, that just dreams about rebuilding the Jewish temple on top uh, of the Temple Mount. Uh, when I asked them how that was going to happen, given the fact that there are Muslim shrines present, they said that that was not their concern. But should for some reason these Muslim shrines disappear, they are prepared. Which is more ominous even than I can make it sound. It was really quite eerie. Uh, but they don't do much more than fantasize. There have been a few nut jobs trying to blow, b- blow the Muslim shrines up, but, but without, without much success. Um, I found on a, on a beautiful box of matzah that I would have loved to show you an image of. Uh, later on, you can all huddle around my laptop and see the photos. Um, uh, that shows sort of a, a panoramic view of Jerusalem, but somebody had bothered to edit out the Dome of the Rock, which is mind-boggling. Like, this is a dude at a matzah company in America. I bought this at Safeway. It was like, oh, I, I think more people will buy this if I, if I use Photoshop to take out the Muslim shrine and envision this Jerusalem that's purely Jewish, which is also terrifying. And then the Muslims who have de facto control over the Temple Mount are now in the process of digging, aggressively digging into the mount. They're the only ones in history to have ever done so, at least in recent, in the last, well, certainly 16, 1400 years, to have dug on the Temple Mount and just chuck whatever they find over the side or, or annihilate it. Um, under, the, under the alleged excuse that they're expanding prayer space. Um, so they're sort of they're doing it by, by uh, uh, sort of archaeological assassination. Um, attempts to resolve these disputes elsewhere in the world uh, uh, usually take the primitive form of, of trying to somehow divide it. Uh, either divide it through time, right? You get to prayer in the morning and they'll pray in the afternoon. Uh, you'll find that at some uh, Hindu-Muslim sacred sites. Or space, as in Hebron, we'll, we'll put a big metal barrier in the middle, and the Jews will pray here, and the Muslims will pray there. And those all fail majestically. They're all disasters. Um, in the case of Hebron, uh, to this day, the only sacred space in, in that part of the world that has its own military commander, so that the Israeli uh, Defense Force actually have had to put a small military base on the roof of this, of this shrine, um, where there's competition between uh, Muslims and Jews. This is the cave of the patriarch to Jews uh, and the Ibrahimi mosque to Muslims. And, and there's a metal barrier, and there are uh, closed-circuit TV cameras, and the Torah and the Quran are kept in fireproof safes. And nonetheless, assassinations, terrorism, Molotov cocktails, stabbings, constant, constant violence, because dividing sacred space satisfies nobody. The result is now both, of, both sides are pissed off. You've achieved nothing. You haven't resolved a thing. 
And, and that, in fact, is, is probably the only way, the rare occasion which these suspicions sort of managed is when a third party that is disinterested and very powerful comes in and lays down the law and essentially says, I don't care if you guys are dissatisfied, but this is here's how it's going to be, right? The way I force my kids to share their bedrooms, right? I don't care that you don't want to share this. You will share it, and here's how it's going to happen. Uh, that will only work as long as I am more powerful than they are. My daughter has now learned how to hold her breath for more than three minutes, uh, which is an, an effective way of bringing me to my knees. Um, and that is essentially what is happening in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So the reason why these different Christian sites haven't killed one another yet is because the state of Israel acts as an outsider and puts down the law. And there are Israeli policemen there all the time. Whenever the state of Israel is weakened, whenever the police is absent, whenever one of the parties feels that it can gain the upper hand, violence breaks out. So it's not, it, that's not what we mean by solving. Uh, there, is, there is really no way to solve. So let me sum up. I think I've talked for long enough, don't you think? I don't know. You're slowly slipping away into oblivion. No. Um, uh, The bottom line conclusion is, uh, first, I'd say, uh, uh, a pervasive sense of of pessimism that I hope has has taken hold of all of you. Um, You cannot walk into this with with the hope uh, that the dispute will, will just go away and resolve itself. And you certainly cannot walk into it with hope that political tools which take the form of a ruler and a pencil, um, are available for addressing this dispute. They can address the problem of the city of Jerusalem. That problem de facto is already resolved. That city is divisible because it has no clear boundaries, because the parts don't hang together, because people are willing to accept money for real estate in Jerusalem. It's not a problem, right? You're not willing to move out of this neighborhood? $5 million. How about $10 million? Uncle Sam's pockets are deep. If the problem of Jerusalem were a problem of real estate... Uncle Sam would love nothing more than to pay Palestinians and Israelis a lot of money to get this dispute out of the way. No such money exists. That's the problem. So the problem for the city of Jerusalem can be addressed. The problem for the old city of Jerusalem, a.k.a. East Jerusalem, a.k.a. the good bits, that problem is harder to address because here the boundaries are clear, the real estate has much higher value, and... It is sort of a coherent whole that's a little more difficult to pull apart, but that too can be resolved. It's as you get to the middle of the cake, and specifically as you get to the cherry. The cherry is indivisible, so it doesn't matter how easy the cake is to divide. In the middle of the cake sits a cherry called the Temple Mount or the Noble Sanctuary. That cannot be divided. There may be room for accommodation. There may be room for flexibility, And there may be room for fruitful management of that dispute. And that, I'd like to argue, requires religious leaders. And if you'd like, during Q&A, I could regale you with stories of how religious leaders, using both their charisma, that power that the Hillel rabbi has, that you can't quite place your finger on, but when he comes into the room, there's a certain mana there uh, that, for example, makes it possible for him, I don't know if you've had the pleasure yet, Uh, to take a Jewish boy and turn him into a Jewish man, or take a Jewish man and a Jewish woman and turn them into a married couple, just by virtue of your mana, right? But it's also by virtue of your know-how. You've you've learned there's a whole series of rules behind this, right? You cannot, if you're a Jewish boy, you cannot become a Jewish man until you're 13, if I remember correctly. Um, So religious leaders have this power, this hold over their followers. They also know some very, very specific rules that most of us in the community don't really bother with. 
So that when our rabbi tells us, imagine this, right? Imagine the Hillel rabbi comes tomorrow and says, guys, I've looked into this. Don't want to bother you with the details, but the Hillel synagogue is not kosher. We can't pray there anymore. I'd like to see somebody in this room say, excuse me, rabbi, but I'd like a second opinion. (laughs) He's a rabbi. If If the rabbi says that the synagogue is no longer kosher, then it's no longer kosher. You cannot pray there. Ipso facto, by virtue of him having says, said, it, said it, it ceases to be a functioning synagogue. Now, Judaism being Judaism, you would argue. <laughs> You'd find another rabbi. Uh, there's some majority rule. If you found three rabbis, they could outvote him. But the, 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 the bottom line message is um, religious leaders have tremendous power to manipulate the boundaries of sacred space, the cohesion of sacred space, and the value of sacred space. That may mean that you should involve them in negotiations. We can talk about that. It certainly means that you can't leave them out of negotiations because you do not want to anger them. If you anger them, these religious leaders will raise the value of the sacred space you're trying to divide, make its boundaries harder, and increase its cohesion, which is what happened at Camp David. So you have to at least pretend to involve them in the process. And... I'll argue and tell you in detail if you like about several instances in history in which religious leaders were able to ameliorate or partially suspend conflict by playing with their community's perception of what the sacred space means and where its boundaries are uh, in ways that don't make the disputes go away, um, but, but make them a lot easier for political leaders to handle. I'll stop there and take questions. so much firstly for your talk um, so you mentioned that the so-called cherry in the middle of the cake is indivisible so if we're not going to divide it I'm wondering what is the alternative is it maybe some form of shared governance I know you know it's been thrown around that it should be an international city um, so what your views on that would be excellent question super um, so what are the options well the, the option the main option I was implying was fight over it um, shared governance uh, implies dividing it, which, which I think is impossible. Uh, and I think it's impossible because these inclinations uh, to, to not divide it for religious reasons have immediate implications for politics. Uh, that's, that's one thing that's sometimes hard to convince an American audience of because there's this fiction in the room which Thomas Jefferson is partially responsible for, that you can somehow set religion aside and keep politics whole or set politics aside and have a serious discussion about religion. Uh, to everybody whose parents are not Protestant, it is obvious that that is patent nonsense. Religion and politics are intertwined because they are intertwined in the individual. The individual is not half political, half religious, right? They're, they're bound together in inextricable ways. And so when I think of a place as being religiously indivisible, that means politically indivisible. I need to control it politically. So shared governance is not an option for that reason. It's also not an option, uh, and neither is the corpus separatum idea, right, which was initially suggested by the United Nations in 47, uh, because one party holds the space. Israelis have sovereignty over the Temple Mount. Uh, and and, and uh, certain Muslims, uh, the, 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 the waqf, which is now primarily controlled by the Palestinians, has de facto control over affairs on the Temple Mount. And neither party wishes to cede to the other symbols of sovereignty or the day-to-day management. So your problem is not that we've arrived at virgin territory 
And now the question is, how do we divide this between two parties? The parties are already holding it. They already have a stake at it. Um, no Israeli will be willing to give up the Temple Mount to be controlled, certainly not by the United Nations, uh, as, as the uh, uh, Israeli consul in, in San Francisco recently beautifully said. Uh, every, time, every time there's a vote at the United Nations, uh, 70-something uh, Muslim states vote one way, and all the Jewish states vote the other way, uh, which is why the results at the UN are always the way they are. There's, there's absolutely no reason why Israelis should trust the United Nations to manage anything, let alone the Temple Mount. Um, and Palestinians are similarly suspicious about what would happen if this were handed off to multiple Muslim states, multiple Arab states who have volunteered for the cause. So I don't think there is a solution. Uh, I think the status quo is the solution, uh, and it's violent, and it's nasty. Uh, hopefully you can keep a lid on it, and the way to keep a lid on it is to give a voice to religious leaders who are helpful, and sideline religious leaders who are not. They can do things like control what is and isn't permitted, particularly what kinds of violence are and aren't permitted uh, in the name of the sacred space. They can control who accesses it. Uh, they can sometimes play with the boundaries in interesting ways. Um, and they can prove a real obstacle if you exclude them. So I have no solution to offer. This is the thorniest real estate problem I know of. I know of no other like it. I have a question for you. The, uh, in 1967, in the summer of love, there was the Arab Israeli conflict over a flood in the course of the river, the Gaza Strip, where Israel got more land. Is, am I correct in this? That's correct. In the 1967 war, okay, Israel. So five years later, the, the, we never heard the word terrorism until the 72 Olympics when Israel, the athletes, were bombed, right? Mm-hmm. Kidnapped, yes, and, and then can they go. flip a coin and split the land? I mean, at what point is it that real estate worth the blood? It's a Hatfield and McCoy fight over the course of a river. What is going on with that? Okay, good, excellent question. Um, where is why is this so important to people? Why is this worth fighting over? I, I think for most people. That's a really tough question. For most people, uh, for most Israelis and Palestinians, it, it doesn't really play sort of a seminal role in their lives. Uh, there are what uh, political scientists call spoilers. That is, there are parties who make it their business, make it their identity, um, who traffic in making this conflict worse. That is how they win elections. Um, uh, members of the settler movement are an example. Uh, Hamas are another example, uh, voted by the Palestinians into power. Uh, whose business is to make this, this conflict irresolvable. Uh, there are then, outside that ring, a bigger ring of voices in the diaspora, both Jewish and Muslim, uh, who will not concede on this issue. And it's very easy for them to not concede because the conflict costs them nothing. It's very easy uh, for the various Osama bin Ladens or um, Muslims in you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Yemen, Morocco to you know, rally uh, to, the, to, to save the Temple Mount from Jewish hands. And you will see, if you have the pleasure of visiting me in my office in Berkeley, I have a collection of uh, stamps from Indonesia and, and uh, currency from Iran that all show the Temple Mount on them. Like, really? There aren't enough sacred places in Iran to put on your currency? You have to put Jerusalem on your currency? Well, you know, why not? No skin off my teeth to be very extreme and very radical, um, radical for this cause. Um, 
But the final thing I'll say, because it's very easy for us to make light of crazy religious people who fight over stones, um, is uh, that nationalism is no less crazier and certainly responsible for a much, much, much bigger chunk of killing. I have this debate with my undergraduates at Berkeley the beginning of every semester. When I put up a quote from uh, Nixon who claimed that the bloodiest wars in history were fought over religion. How many of you agree? And all the students go, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. And then I say, name one. And somebody says, the Crusades. I'm like, okay, that was 900 years ago. Anything more recent you can think of? Really? A war caused by religion. Let's go through the really big ones. U.S. Civil War, Vietnam, Korea, World War I, World War II, the Napoleonic Wars. Religion? Nationalism. Arguably the absence of religion, particularly in the French case. So it's very, it's very easy for us to ask, you know, why are these oddballs... Why is it so important to these strange people in that strange part of the world? It's no less strange than dying for your flag. And I can't explain nationalism, so I, I can't really get at the ground of, of religious proclivities for violence, but I'll, I'll, make this, uh, I'll make this last stand for religion. It's no less stranger a proclivity to fight for this than it is to die and fight for anything else. Hi. Hi. So um, I was wondering if Israel stopped being a religious state and um, became more democratic, um, per se, would this do anything to affect or alter the problem, even though there are still sacred places? Interesting. So do I, didn't, do I need to repeat the question? Or, or did you all hear uh, no, it? It's not, it it's, did you all hear it in the back? The question was, if Israel stopped being a religious state um, or stopped caring about these sacred places, would the conflict stop? Israel is one of the most secular states in the world in terms of separating church and state on multiple levels. Um, there are Muslim members of the Israeli parliament. Uh, there's freedom of religion in Israel, unlike any other country I know of in the Middle East. Um, most Israelis, uh, I don't know what the latest count is, but the, but the, usual, uh, the usual number in my head is at least 80% of Israelis consider themselves to be either secular or sort of traditionally religious, you know, celebrate Christmas or whatever the Jewish equivalent may be. Um, uh, most Israelis don't keep kosher. Most Israelis don't observe the Sabbath. Certainly the elites in Israel have always been secular. Um, so it's by far the most secular country involved in the conflict. Uh, it's easy to forget, right, that there's two sides to this dispute, right? So you could have as well asked the question about the other side, uh, where religion, certainly now that the Palestinians have elected a fundamentalist movement into power, Hamas is aiming for a Sharia state, which no party active in the Israeli, in Israeli politics today is, is claiming to be. And Israel is ranked very high on the democratic index. Um, Palestinians so far have had one election, and that election was quite democratic. So I don't think that's where the problem lies. Uh, the governments uh, have proven themselves rather inclined to resolve this dispute. Uh, Ehud Barak offered more at Camp David to resolve the Temple Mount dispute than the Palestinians will ever be offered from now to the end of time. I, I can assure that. That's not the problem. The problem is not some generosity or the ability of government to detach itself from the issue. The problem is that the populations themselves value these places tremendously. And if any of you have ever been there, how many of you have been to Jerusalem? How many of those with their hands up have put a note in the Western Wall? 
there's something there, isn't there? Am I mad? There is something there. This place is, call it bewitched, call it numinous, uh, call it a hierophany. Uh, the place is special, uh, and, and, and people feel strongly about it. Uh, and it's not, a, not necessarily a top-down process. It's easy to imagine, this, imagine that this is all the result of manipulation by wily leaders. And in fact, Professor uh, Heck, together with his uh, co- colleague Roger Freeland, have made the argument that, uh, that, that the construction of sacred space and the value of sacred space comes not just below, it also comes from above. It also comes from politicians who are pulling the strings here because they benefit from conflict. That's certainly true, but it's not necessary for conflict. These conflicts, it suffices if you just ask the populations about how they feel. Nobody is pulling strings uh, to get the Hopi and the Paiute to fight over, um, over the golden eaglets. Uh, that's, it's, it's a Hopi and Paiute problem. It, it, it's the desires and beliefs and identities of these communities, and the same is true for the Shasta Indians. I'm Mark Sherwin. I guess... Uh, I do not share your pessimism, Good. and I would <laughs> like to just say that, as far as I can tell, there is a modus operandi on the Temple Mount right now where the Muslims pray in their mosque and the Jews pray at the Western Wall. And, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but that, it, it works. That's right. Thank you. So thank you for introducing chapter nine of my book, so now I can talk about it. Um, how is it that this mode came about? So we're, we're going back to 1967, when for the first time in 2,000 years, Jews have sovereignty over the Temple Mount. And those of you old enough will remember a tremendous rejoicing, a, a Masonic euphoria of sorts. And the prospect arises of hundreds of thousands of Jews going on the Temple Mount to pray, as they had done 2,000 years earlier. And this is a tremendous problem for the Israeli leadership, which understands early on that if Jews and Muslims were both to pray on top of the platform, then regardless of your optimism, this you will share with me, that if Jews and Muslims were both to pray on top there, that would have been a problem. Daily friction, as you see in Hebron, as you see in Ayodhya, they would constantly bump into one another. Why aren't you taking off your shoes? Why are you wearing a kippah? Why aren't you wearing a kippah? back and forth and back and forth and back. Just to give an example, there were Jews who, who, who thought that their, their role on the Temple Mount would be to offer sacrifices. Whereas the number one Muslim rule for sacred space is you cannot shed blood. It's a real zero, it's a zero-sum problem. At which point, a big committee of rabbis met in Jerusalem to discuss what it meant for Jews to access the Temple Mount. I will spare you the story, although for, for somebody who studies the intricacies of, of Jewish ritual law, the story is actually quite interesting. The rabbis concluded that the, Temple Mount, that the Temple Mount was so holy, so very holy, and that the precise rituals required to access it, the rituals of ablution, uh, the special blessings, the special prayers, the special powder that was required to wash yourself with before you entered, since these had been lost, the space was too holy for Jews to enter. And so a proclamation was issued, which I would have showed you a picture of, that still is still at the entrance of every entrance to the Temple Mount that says, Jews may not enter this space due to its holiness, which is insane. It's insane to say to someone, this space is so important to you. It's the most important space in the world. You can't go in. 
It was utterly ingenious. It was highly contentious. Most Jews you will talk today in America will say, well, of course we don't go to the Temple Mount. It's forbidden to Jews. Nonsense. It was never forbidden to Jews. The rabbis made it up on the spot. After a great deal of debate, there was a core group of rabbis that disagreed, that said, what are you talking about? This was a place that Jews access daily. We just have to figure out how. The problem was that the leader among these rabbis was the chief military rabbi of the IDF, the famous Shlomo Gorin. And the government prohibited him from participating in the conference. They censored him. And so the conference resulted in this very interesting rabbinical ruling that said, Jews have to find some other place to pray. While this is going on, the government makes sure to clear the space in front of the Western Wall and institute Jewish prayer there, a site that was the center of Jewish prayer for maybe 500 years, which in Jewish history is nothing. So there's a very serious, concerted effort by leading rabbis in Israel to shift attention away from the Temple Mount and down onto the platform. The, the, the Western Wall, contrary to what you may have been told in Sunday school, is not a wall of the Jewish Temple. It is not even an exterior wall of the Jewish Temple. It is a bolstering wall of the platform on which stood a series of walls that surrounded the Temple. And nonetheless, through very smart channeling of religious rulings, through posters that were put up throughout Jerusalem that 70 of the leading rabbis of Israel signed off on, gradually a culture was put in place that prohibited Jews from going onto the Temple Mount. All Jews? No, most Jews ignored the ruling. But then most Jews aren't the kind to cause trouble on the Temple Mount. I've been on the Temple Mount multiple times. I don't particularly follow rabbinical rulings. It is the rabbinical ruling prohibited precisely the most devout Jews, precisely those that were most likely to take action, possibly provocative action, possibly even violent action from going on the Temple Mount. It was a truly ingenious solution. I have no way to prove that the government manipulated the solution. The government certainly enjoyed the solution, and the government contributed to it by amplifying the voices that said, better keep off the Temple Mount, and by silencing people like Shlomo Gorin, who said, really, why? They just shut him up. They first forced him to change the topic of his talk. Then they wanted to see the speech. And when the day of the conference came, he was prohibited from attending and was then silenced for decades later until, upon retirement as chief rabbi, finally published his, his official opinion, which is, of course you can go on the Temple Mount. Just have to be careful how you do it and what places you go on. So this is the example I was alluding to all along of the ways in which religious leaders can make a modus vivendi like the one you described possible. And it's great. It's a fantastic modus vivendi. It doesn't always work. Now and again, particularly starting in the mid-'80s, as a growing number of rabbis said, why are, why are we not entering the most sacred place to us on earth? And if it's so important for us to keep out of it, why are we letting Muslims go there? This doesn't make any sense. There was a last-ditch effort by some really smart rabbis to say, listen, this is great Talmudic thinking. If we tell Jews that they can only walk in certain parts of the Temple Mount, sort of along the perimeter, the Muslims will be given the impression that we only care about the perimeter. By abstaining from the whole Temple Mount, we reserve the right to claim the entire Temple Mount. To which most everybody else who speaks Hebrew said, what? So now there are growing voices of rabbis, many of them uh, the rabbis from settlements, 
in the West Bank who say it's absolutely okay to go on the Temple Mount whenever such issues arise. The Lubavitcher rabbi was another voice coming from America. Whenever they encourage their followers, their followers enter the Temple Mount and you get immediate bloodshed. So it's a modus vivendi. It's precarious. It satisfies neither party. The Muslims wish to have sovereignty and they don't. The Muslims do not want to see tourists there and they certainly don't want to see Jews there but they have to abide by Israeli law, which promises freedom of religion. They have gone so far as to ban visitors from the inside of the shrines themselves, which is outrageous, but the Israelis haven't fought them over it. The Jews, meanwhile, pray at a site best described as tertiary, um, while constantly having a desire to control the real thing itself, but believe that they are prohibited from actually accessing it. So far, that prohibition is held. There are constant debates on it time and again. And next time you're in Jerusalem, please observe the sign at the entrance that says, this place is so holy. How holy is it? It's so holy that you can't go in there, which is fascinating. Hi. Thank you again for a phenomenal lecture. Um, You said the status quo was the solution. So I was wondering what you thought about Fayyad's state building proposal. And um, as you said, Violent resistance hasn't exactly worked. Um, Israel still has sovereignty over Jerusalem, uh, diplomacy through the United Nations. So this new approach of basically bypassing those options and building a state next door to Israel. I was wondering what you thought, what that meant. Um, So if I understand your question correctly, it refers to avoiding formalities, Uh, avoiding anything in writing or maps that delineate exactly what belongs to whom where, and solving a problem that comes from practice by practicing, just by doing. Um, This is good if the thing you happen to be doing is amenable to the thing the other party is doing. So currently, it so happens that Muslims get to have free reign on the Temple Mount. There's a great deal of friction between them and archaeologists. Um... And Israel has long since stopped sort of enforcing its laws regarding archaeology on the Temple Mount. Uh, but that's fine. It so happens that, that Jews don't bump into Muslims on the Temple Mount because of the way Jewish rulings happen to currently work. But that may change. Religion is living. Religion changes all the time. New rulings arise, partially in response to political events, partially because new rabbis appear on the scene, partially because religion requires constant innovation and reaction. Um, and so I like the idea I like the idea of taking it sort of day, one day at a time not aspiring towards some great end uh, but at the grassroots level trying to make it work day by day by day and that essentially is what's happening and currently that's fine uh, the tension is seething under the surface uh, and so there are two schools here in the study of uh, disputes and in the particular study of territorial disputes. One that claims along Fayad's lines that disputes gradually resolve themselves. They tend to die off as people get tired of expending resources on the dispute, tired of the bloodshed, uh, find ways to sort of work it out, particularly as they live side by side. They sort of hammer out uh, resolutions on a, on a very pragmatic day-to-day level. Uh, the other group, which sadly I associate with, argues that disputes become worse with every passing day. With every passing day, facts on the ground dig their nails deeper and deeper and deeper in. 
and changes that were possible in 67 and somewhat likely in the mid-70s and relatively unlikely in the 80s today can no longer happen. So part of, part of this pragmatic approach means uh, that Israelis are simply going to stay off the Temple Mount, regardless of the kind of criminal digging that Palestinians do. And so 2,000 years of history are just being destroyed. But, you know, it's just live and let live and not intervene and not push too hard. Um, but those, those, that archaeology is then gone, right? There's nothing you can do to bring it back. It's destroyed. It's annihilated. And similarly, um, you know, this means not dealing with the settlements. They're just going to be there, and you're going to live with them, and you're going to get used to it. But moving settlers is one thing. Moving the children of settlers is harder, and moving the grandchildren of settlers is going to be harder yet because people cre- create attachments to land. They invest in it. They build institutions in it. Um, they they put their, sort of put their futures in it. So I'm actually pessimistic about this dispute sort of just dissolving with the passage of time. I think it's becoming entrenched and harder to resolve with every passing moment. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.